data security expert Ryan Lackey says two-factor authentication is failing us. So what can be done to make it better? Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz, Managing Editor for Europe for Information Security Media Group, and I'm joined today by Ryan Lackey, who's the Product Engineer for Security at DDoS defense firm Cloudflare. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Before we jump in, I just want to ask, how does two-factor authentication differ from what a lot of sites and businesses are calling two-step verification? And is that an important distinction? The primary difference between a good two-factor authentication system and a two-step authentication system is that the steps have to be fully independent. Compromising one system shouldn't get you automatically into the next system. They should be independent. It should be something you have, something you know, something you are. But just having access to one of these credentials shouldn't be two things. Like One of the historical things from maybe 2006 to 2010 was the knowledge-based authentication system where they would ask questions about where you live, previous addresses, things like that which are generally public records or fairly close to it. So anyone who knew enough about you to know you're a target for something would know enough to do the research and really would add no additional security. You also have systems where access to your password, which might be reused on your local system and the rest of your system, if the password used for your online account is the same password used for your local system and then for a key store or something else that stores things on your local system, then it's really reduced the security to a single factor, just the password. Or something where you have a biometric sensor or you have a smart card or something locally attached to your machine. You're using that machine to log in to a target site. And if somebody's already compromised your machine, they can then spoof your login to the site. They can redirect your login. They can use any of the devices that are connected. You can use your biometric or your smart card or whatever else just by masquerading as the user. And that's enough to get them access to the system. In an ideal world, would we be having two entirely separate systems coming together when you needed to do two-factor authentication. Definitely. That's the way two-factor authentication started. It was really disconnected systems. They were either paper lists that were a bunch of hashes that were chained together, like S-key, or they were physical tokens that didn't have any networking capability. But we've moved on to a lot of soft token systems for a variety of good reasons. Cost savings, ease of a deployment, issues with the hard tokens of the time, which were idiosyncratic to those particular tokens. And also, at the same time, cell phones have become very connected. They've gone from being standard standalone cell phones that can receive SMS to smartphones to devices that are fully connected to cloud services that connect your desktop PC, your laptop, your tablet, and your phone together. So really none of these devices are independent at this point. So you end up with two-factor just being another application that runs on either your phone or on your desktop or on your laptop, and it doesn't really give you any additional isolation that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Two-factor still, even in that case, serves a meaningful role. It's an additional roadblock, but it's not a very high roadblock. And as we've seen, targeted malware is designed to sort of bypass those small speed there. If it's possible for someone who has full control of your computer to log into a site for banking purposes or whatever else and masquerade as you, malware authors have every incentive to build their malware to accomplish that. There was a rumor, which hasn't been substantiated, that the JP Morgan Chase breach began when a remote employee's PC got compromised, and that's brought out a lot of commentary about how hardware-based authentication used to be much more common, like Secure ID. But a lot of that has now given way to software-based authentication, which might not be as secure. So as we go forward, as people want to tackle this problem in a more meaningful way, is the software going to get better? Could you see us reverting to hardware authentication? Or what do you think might happen? 
I think we could see two things. I think we could see the software-based authentication taking better advantage of platform security on mobile and desktop operating systems, either the TPM-type security on PCs or the key store-type key bag protection on iOS or Android equivalents, so that you could build a soft token that was genuinely secure. Things like Touch ID. Touch ID does have some vulnerabilities. The glue and PC board attack that Mark Rogers has is a pretty glaring vulnerability, but it's still an incredibly strong physical presence detect sensor for the user. There's no way malware can trigger the Touch ID sensor. So it has to be a user hitting the button at a certain time. And that itself is a big security step. So having something like that that uses platform security features as a way to build your soft tokens could be one solution. Another solution could be hardware tokens. The problems with hardware tokens, aside from cost and just sort of like reluctance to use them because they're sort of viewed as antiquated, is that users end up with multiple hardware tokens and they need to have multiple applications. And there's an additional problem with them of the hardware tokens generally don't display any information. They don't have interactivity. They're just a single display of information that changes with time. I think a two-factor token that was hardware, that was standalone, that was secure, could support multiple applications at the same time, but also allowed user input so the user could enter enough of a uh, transaction detail or have a one-way communication from the computer so that you could tell that a certain kind of transaction or a certain site is being authorized and then have a secure display on the device that would show the user, yes, this is a site you're trying to connect to. Do you want to go ahead? Yes, no. That might be enough to make a hardware security token do a lot of things that that you'd like it to do. So at that point, people might be willing to pay the additional cost of having a $50 or $100 shared hardware token across all the devices. There's also sort of a fight for pocket space because people already have their keys, their cell phone, their wallet, and all these other devices. So it has to be a lot more functional. There's a pretty high bar for carrying a hardware token around. But if you had something that was generally genuinely multifunctional and would work on a bunch of sites and gave you a much better level security, I could definitely see enterprises switching to that. At least for the enterprise market, if not the consumer? Yeah, I think it'll be a tough sell for consumer applications, at least outside of some very specialized worlds like Bitcoin or high net worth individuals or things like that ever adopting any sort of security hardware for their daily life. We've seen people use cell phones for more and more things and I think the general trend is to try to use smaller numbers of items and they're physically smaller items. I think for enterprise you might be able to push it or for certain individuals but not for the, the mass market consumer. One interesting side effect of the rise of Bitcoin has been people looking for ways to securely store their data so that they can't get their Bitcoin stolen. Do you think we might see anything coming out of that world when it comes to new techniques for two-factor authentication or authorization? We've seen a lot of really interesting security technology in the Bitcoin space. I think I've heard probably 10 people contact me asking me how to use hardware security modules in Bitcoin to put a wallet inside an HSM. There are cool devices like the Tresor, which is an offline Bitcoin hardware wallet. There are three or four other hardware wallets that people have built. There's certainly the key management issue of doing offline keys, bank safe deposit boxes, split multi-devices. Bitcoin's a great example of um, impetus to create good internal control systems because it's effectively cash. It's unlike an account balance. The Bitcoins are actually totally transferable by individual employees, so you don't want to trust a single employee with a key. And there are good systems there to build control systems around multiple keys, multiple parties. The problem is, I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing, but Bitcoin actually has multiple signatures built into the protocol. So there are a lot of ways to cheat and get really good Bitcoin security using something that's very specific to Bitcoin. So the side effect of creating great security technology might not be fully there for some of these things. But yeah, definitely Bitcoin is an exciting area. I've seen a lot of the Bitcoin wallet sites uh, like Coinbase or uh, BitPay or various services like that use two-factor authentication for their account. They generally use it just for an additional login authentication mechanism, not so much for a encryption mechanism or anything like that. So you're still exposed to backend compromise by the site. It's just an additional user authentication system for a consumer website. So it's a meaningful security step for them. But if you don't trust the site administrators on the site, which 
I probably I would, there's a lot of site administrators I would be willing to trust with hundreds or thousands of dollars. If I had enough Bitcoin to have millions of dollars, I would have a much smaller set of people I'd trust. So that might be a, an interesting area to explore. Do you think there's been increased focus or attention on two-factor authentication since the iCloud hack that exposed celebrities' private photographs? And a lot of people began asking what Apple was or wasn't doing to protect everyone's data. Definitely. I think the iCloud hack raised a lot of questions both about Apple security in general and about two-factor authentication. About Apple security, Jonathan Zdarsky's work showing that Apple doesn't actually encrypt the majority of the stuff that users really think should be encrypted, even though they were pretty transparent about it. They published reports about this for the past couple of years about exactly what they do for protection. It's just not what users would intuitively expect is protected. The user data, the SMSs, the emails, everything else are the things that users care about. But I think Apple corrected course on that and is going to start encrypting all the stuff by default. On the two-factor side, it was really an implementation error. There are really two big classes of implementation errors with the two-factor auth systems, which are sort of a consequence of how they've been bolted onto existing systems. There's not making the two-factor factors themselves fully independent and making sure that they remain independent even as technology changes. And then also making sure that every part of your application goes through the two-factor door. Right now, there are a lot of systems that have two-factor on the front door for the regular user authentication path, but they skip two-factor for account recovery, for administrative procedures, anything that's sort of an infrequent operation because they didn't see the need to implement it or they forgot that it existed when they implemented the two-factor. So that's really what happened to Apple. And it's a great example for everyone else of how to fix it or why you should fix it. Because when you want to attack a system, you go for the least well-protected aspect of it, even when a user only uses it rarely? Yeah, definitely. The weakest link in the system is the place to attack. Are there any glaringly bad examples of sites or applications or things which don't have two-factor, but should, or where it's difficult to add if you need it? I think there's a lot of the applications that should have two-factor and don't. Twitter, until relatively recently, was the one that sort of stood out to me because it's such a tempting target for attack. There's a lot of things that people just generally don't care about and they're not worth attacking. So whether or not they have two-factor is immaterial. But systems that have a lot of users and have a lot of users who are potentially exposed are a major factor. The other thing, in addition to two-factor, that's a serious problem is account sharing. I think it's important that anyone building a system moving from the consumer space to business or enterprise have a system that supports multiple user accounts so you don't have to share accounts. It's a basic security principle that people should be able to reset their credentials if they lose them. And if you have a single password shared across 100 of your employees and somebody loses it, there's going to be a lot of reluctance to change that password. Two-factor actually is sort of an issue there because if you have the shared password scenario, the two-factor auth sharing credential thing usually doesn't work. So two-factor auth is often a good way to prevent people from sharing passwords, which is a useful security control to put in place. As far as applications that don't have two-factor that really should have two-factor, I think there's still a lot of banking applications in the United States that have knowledge-based authentication, which is, in my opinion, completely worthless, or actually worse than worthless because I forget the correct answers, even as the account holder. And there are systems that have other two-factors that are very weak, that have SMS-based two-factor or voicemail-based two-factor or call-based that goes to voicemail two-factor. And those systems are the ones that I interact with. Pretty much any vendor that doesn't support two-factor, I generally try to avoid having accounts with that vendor at this point. Seems like great advice. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me today, Ryan. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for joining me.